Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Fan and the Critic. I almost forgot what the name of this podcast was as I was introducing that, but I got it. Um, We are here uh, this month, I guess, to talk about Christopher Nolan and all his films and doing a spotlight on his latest film, Oppenheimer, uh, which we have all seen. So we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to rank all 11 feature-length Christopher Nolan films. Um, And I am joined by, as always, Paulo. Um, as my co-host, and our guest this month is Tony, uh, who is joining us. So thanks for thanks for joining us, Tony. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to, to dive in. So as we always do with new guests of the show, uh, we've asked you to pick three movie or TV characters. Uh, doesn't have to be related to Christopher Nolan at all, but just anything to help introduce yourself and your personality. So what did uh, what did you come up with? Yeah, for sure. Um, I I, pro- I hope that you guys don't uh, don't judge me for this. It's definitely <laughs> not at all related to Christopher Nolan uh, and very much personal to me. Um, so I chose three, um, kind of spanning different genres. Um, the first one being um, George from Seinfeld, Jason Alexander. Um, just love how neurotic he is. Um, I'm also neurotic, but not quite as neurotic as George from Seinfeld, but I can sympathize and empathize with a lot of the social situations that he gets himself into. And of course he's based on Larry David and love curb as well. So uh, definitely love uh, the character and, and sometimes see a lot of myself and George for better or for worse. Um, second one is uncle Iroh from avatar, the last airbender. Um, absolutely love that show. And I find myself going back and really watching a lot of the scenes of uncle Iroh. Um, really love the original voice actor passed away uh, midway through the show. Mako, I think was his name. Um, just had a great voice, but love the character. I love his affinity for, for tea. I also love tea. Uh, <laughs> I just love his approach to um, most conflicts and most situations. He had a very calming presence and just a very whimsical way to to look at things. And I really appreciate that and have really grown to um, kind of view conflicts the same uh, in a lot of the way uh, that Uncle Iroh did. And the last one um, is Mary. Um, from Lord of the Rings, like of Merry and Pippin fame. Um, <laughs> he's just a, he's a great friend. Um, he's very, very, very loving, very courageous. Um, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily very courageous, but I do consider myself to be a great friend uh, to those that know me. And um, yeah, he likes, likes to have fun, likes to have a good time. Uh, and, I, and I definitely appreciate those values and also just love Lord of the Rings and, and love Merry and Pippin. I find Mary to be the uh, always the forgotten one, which uh, I'm glad he's getting some love here. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was talking about this with my fiance yesterday, she's like, "You can't, you can't do Pippin. Pippin is the worst. Like he like almost <laughs> gets them killed like ten times over in the first movie." I'm just like, "Yeah, you're right. Like Pippin's great, but Mary's great too. Uh, but they're they're all great in their own right." But Pippin also has, I think, like a better character arc because he stu- he starts from such a low place that when he you know, kind of builds up and eventually becomes the Gondor soldier. It's like, okay, that's mm-hmm. quite the journey. Whereas Mary, you kind of see as being a little bit more serious from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but it's not really explored in the movies, but I, I also really like their journey afterwards and like just their continued friendship and and their kind of exploration around around the, the universe of Middle-earth. But uh, yeah, Mary was my choice. What'd you guys think of uh, Uncle Iroh and, and George? I have not seen Avatar, 
uh, t- either TV shows or the movie adaptations. <laughs> um, I'm familiar with the character, so I have like I know the general idea. Um, having known you like previously, I don't think I would have picked any of those three characters. So that's interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Actually, I know you mentioned you guys haven't spoken in like ten years, but I was like, does that track with how you remember? <laughs> how you remember Tony? I guess it like it doesn't track, but it also doesn't not track. If that makes sense, like, <laughs> so it's not wildly inaccurate. <laughs> I guess. Also, people change a lot in ten years. I'm sure <laughs> the version of myself ten years ago was a little bit more alcohol based than today. <laughs> um, all right, so gonna jump into our first conversation. So, as I mentioned, we're gonna talk about. Uh, Christopher Nolan's latest movie, Oppenheimer. Uh, we'll do kind of a deep dive on that, and then I guess we'll see where that fits into the larger uh, filmography of Christopher Nolan. So we haven't discussed this previously. I don't even know, like, even the gen- most general of opinions. So maybe that's a good place to start. Um, what were your general impressions? Did you like it? Did you hate it? Somewhere in between. Paul, go ahead, Tony. Oh, sure. <laughs> Um, You're a guest, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really quite enjoyed it. Um, I didn't, truth be told, like know much. I mean, I knew who Oppenheimer was. I knew what he was, you know, infamous or famous for. Um, but I didn't really know, like, the lead up to it and what actually happened after the fact. Um, so I think the the film did a really great job of, sure, like there was a build up to when the bomb was going to go off ultimately during the test, but. I really liked the exploration for that hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes afterwards of the aftermath of what happened and how he was kind of reviewed and treated in, in, in American politics and American culture. But I really enjoyed it. It didn't feel like I was watching a three hour or three hour plus film. It felt like pretty quick when I was sitting there in the theater. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it through and through. Um, definitely a very solid film and didn't also didn't feel like a, like it was biopicy at all. It, it could have been really any film in its own right. It didn't have to be about Oppenheimer, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, definitely certain things that I'm going to pick out, like the the, the length. Um, that was one of the things that I, I expected. Nowadays, I I, um, I tend to get I don't, sleepy <laughs> in like maybe the third hour, the last uh, 30 minutes maybe. But I think this was structured well enough, um, uh, excitement aside from like what was happening in the story, but it was structured well enough that there was like highs placed strategically near the end. For example, like normally around the time where I get where I'll get tired is like when the trial was picking up and there was a little bit of like I don't know if it was Oppenheimer's doing with the uh, the scientist testifying against. Um, Robert Downey Jr.'s senator, I can't remember his name, um, and like the his his wife coming to his defense, like all of that was like nice and really picked things up again after a bit of a like a valley um, in the story. Um, and then also on top of that, um, like going into it, I I'm kind of the same as you, Tony. I, I didn't I wasn't really familiar with that the the story. I know it's based on a book. I haven't read it. I know who he is, and even when the movie was introduced, I wasn't like, I wasn't super excited about it. I wasn't super high on like, oh, I really want to know what happened with Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like, I, I gave it, I, I gave it 
the benefit of the doubt on the strength of Christopher Nolan directing it. Um, um, and I mean, yeah, I wasn't disappointed. Like it, it, it definitely exceeded my expectations. Um, and I, I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I would say I liked it. I didn't love it. Uh, I think it was a victim of expectations because uh, it's hard for like Christopher Nolan to just make a regular movie that's about a character is like people aren't expecting that. They're expecting much more. And I think with how the movie was marketed, like it was all here's the bomb. It's going to be this amazing visual effects. There was this talk about like him actually detonate, like people making jokes about it. He, that would actually detonate an atomic bomb and film it. Um, and so like people had all these expectations and after watching it, you kind of realize like, that's not, that's not what the movie was going to be about at all. And um, especially when you actually get to the point in the movie where the bomb actually goes off, like it's very kind of anticlimactic from a visuals perspective. Um, Underwhelming. It, yeah. It fit the scene. Like it fit in my opinion, what the movie was trying to do. Um, but it was maybe marketed not the right way. Um, I like the type of movie it was aiming to be, but my biggest complaint is that like, what is it really about? Like you see some of his bigger movies, like interstellar is this big, long movie and it wraps it in a nice bow. I didn't like the bow that it wrapped it in, but it did try to like bring everything together. Whereas this one, it was like, here's this big, long story about how everything happened. And then we also have this story about the trial and like how he was treated afterwards. And it's just like, for me, it didn't all connect. Um, still very good, like individual scenes and obviously great acting, but it was just like at the end of it, I was like, okay, what's the point of the story? I don't know. I mean, I, I felt like the, there, there was a, there were a few points, like it, it was balancing being kind of a biopic of Oppenheimer and how kind of, I guess, naive he was with like the, the politics game and, um, the, the need to be not his own need, but why it was important for people to to like him and respect him um versus like nuclear bombs are bad <laughs> as the main uh, the main lesson i mean the the connection between those two things were kind of thin but i saw there was kind of like a i felt like there was kind of a mirror between him and um i keep forgetting what robert downey jr's um character. strauss strauss yes um strauss oh, no it's strauss not strauss sorry um but yeah just ba like holding them up against each other or like kind of comparing the two i felt that's kind of what they were doing when especially when they were having the the uh, the hearing versus the well the hearings on or the i don't know his security clearance hearing versus the yeah. confirmation hearing um and there's a line about like two scorpions i can't remember who says it in the movie but like I, I saw that I, I saw it kind of also referring to Oppenheimer and Strauss. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, they're the connecting those themes were kind of like it, it wasn't a really strong connection, but it was there enough for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I also do feel that like with the source material being American Prometheus and I mean, Obviously, he drew on other sources too. Like it's a real life person that that lived and, and did something for real. It's it's tough to to wrap it up in in kind of that neat bow, whether we like it or not. When you know he has to go by whatever the source material is. Like especially for as sensitive of a topic as it is of developing the atomic bomb, it's difficult to to then kind of end the film on a different note, other than how his real life actually ended. Um, and I, I think I would have 
I would have hated it a lot more had the movie taken like a hard stance of like, no, nuclear weapons are really bad and here's why. And we're going to show you this example of Oppenheimer's life and how he had this, you know, struggle and internal monologue of I'm developing this thing that's going to be saving humanity versus actually dangerous for humanity in the future. Um, I mean, it, it still presented it that way and that internal struggle that Oppenheimer went through, but I'm glad that, I mean, I haven't read American Prometheus, but I presume that it's pretty faithful to, to the source material. Um, and I did like go on this whole deep rabbit hole afterwards of reading everything I could about Oppenheimer after the movie. Uh, <laughs> so I was really interested in Oppenheimer and just wanting to know more about him and like his life and what happened. And uh, it seemed to be like pretty spot on with what happened in his life. Um, and I, you know, I, I can appreciate that and I can appreciate the, like the, the acting and, and the execution of that in the movie was, was well done instead of it being, being wrapped up into an ending that I was comfortable with or happy with. Uh, I'm okay with like a vague ending. I almost wish they had gone a little bit further in regards to asking the question of who Oppenheimer was. I think there was a certain point where Robert Downey Jr.'s he was accusing Oppenheimer of like, you know, he knew we were going to use the bomb. He did this whole thing because he wanted to be famous. Like he knew what he was getting himself into. And by the time Robert Downey Jr. is giving that line of dialogue, you don't really believe him. Like you kind of feel like, oh, he's just worried about himself. But I wish they tried to convince us, the audience, a little bit more that like maybe he is that type of guy, like where you kind of don't know. Um, like another Christopher Nolan movie, I and Inception at the end, you have the spinning pop top and it kind of just leaves you with the question of whether you think it's real or not. Like, I wish that they kind of ended this with the question of like, who is he? Um, especially because there's the the speech he gives after the bomb where he's like, oh, I just wish we could have dropped it on the Germans first. Um, so it's like he was saying these things that I feel like you could have shown the other side of him and posted as more of a question of like, what were his motives? Like, what was his reasoning for being part of this project? Um, and I, I mean, like, he wasn't wrong about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, like they, they introduced it. They kind of like tiptoed around it. I just felt like I wish they would have explored that a little more. Like, I don't want it when I say yeah. wrapped in a bow, I guess what I really mean is like tied around a central theme, even if that theme ends on a question, it just kind of felt like it was going in different places at different times. Yeah, I, I do get that. I, I feel that um, the topic, though, is, is quite sensitive with Oppenheimer and like how he was perceived like after the fact, like after the testing was complete and it was successful, um, like that has since been like publicly retracted. And I think it was like quite recent actually. Um, I was reading about this on, on his uh, Wikipedia page where like, I think it was the Biden government or maybe the government for it, um, like publicly said like how that hearing was handled was, was incorrect. Like it was not handled properly. We didn't, you know, follow due process, all of these things. Um, so I think Christopher Nolan knew that going into it. And I think he wanted to avoid maybe having that that kind of conflict in the movie where it's up to the interpretation of the viewer to say, like, did Oppenheimer just want to develop this to, you know, drop a bomb? Or like, did he want to develop this for other reasons? Like, what was his reasoning really? Um, so I think he's, he's really been exonerated uh, in history, Oppenheimer. Um, and no one knows that. And that's why I think he didn't leave it up to the interpretation. Of, of viewers yeah and the other thing that i wish they would have gone into a little bit like because if you don't go into the interpretation on that i think you can also pose the question a little bit more of like was it a good thing that they dropped the bomb like was it a like they go a little bit more towards the side of like oh this is like terrible we're you know killing people but 
you know, that that's a pretty complex question of, you know, was it the right thing to do? Did it save lives by preventing like a disastrous World War Three stuff like that? Even like, you know, conversations I had, oh, I shouldn't talk, but she's not going to listen to this episode anyway. So anyway, I was talking to my wife <laughs> after that. Um, and like, she's from Korea. And at that time, at the end of World War Two, like Japan was taking over Korea and doing a lot of terrible stuff to their citizens. So like, as terrible as dropping that bomb was, like it did kind of do some good things in the region by causing like, you know, bad things that the Japanese government was doing to kind of stop. So it's like, that's mm -hmm. a very complex moral question of like what happened with the bomb. And again, I feel like they tiptoed around it, but I just wish they would have explored the other sides of that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I mean, for something like that, I, I feel like it's more of uh, a victim of the, the length and like trying to be as accurate and thorough as possible in terms of like including all of the source material, because they did a really good job. Like, they, yeah, apparently they did a really good job of being true to life. Um, a lot of the things that that they portrayed in the movie actually did happen, which you don't see a whole lot of in, in stuff like this. Um, and I mean, in a three hour long movie already where it's some things are they're moving pretty fast especially that like you have the little conversation about okay where should we drop the bomb like where will it do the the least amount of civilian damage but also like have the desired effect um also we have to do it twice so that they know like we can continue doing this and stuff like that so they included it but it like they did not necessarily have to tiptoe around it but they just had to keep things moving or else it would have been an extra two hours um that being said, I think it was still effective. Um, like it, it got me thinking. Like you, you see a lot of movies nowadays where just you, people throw around the word nuke. Oh, like there's there's a nuclear bomb in the city. Like we got to find it. Like in an action movie, whatever you know. And then you kind of get numb to like how bad it actually is. And I think this movie did a good job of kind of like it's not even a nuclear bomb. It's a it's an atom bomb but it's still like the worst thing that you could possibly do. Right. And I really did get that sense. So I give it kudos for that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that they captured the the fear really well, and especially the fear of the unknown too. I, I, I do like, I feel like they, they didn't do it justice where like him and Einstein were having that conversation and worrying about the potential of the chain reaction and like the world ending as a result. And like, they, they talked about it and they're like, yeah, this might happen, kind of. <laughs> um, they're like, we did calculations, we're good, like, don't worry about it. Um, and like, I, I feel like maybe it was under, like, a bit kind of underscored as to like how, how serious that could have possibly been. So it was the first time like ever they were developing this kind of thing. And they were just like, yeah, we're pretty confident that's not going to happen. Um, so we're just going to go with it because the Germans are developing or the Russians are, so we have to too. Uh, that was kind of kind of funny. It was, yeah. They were pretty nonchalant about it. Like, oh, this, like, we press this button, it might end the world. <laughs> okay. I feel like that's one of those things they did for dramatic effect where somebody at some point in the calculation said, hey, this is a very outlier concern and, you know, maybe we're just going to have to live with that. But it's like, obviously, in a movie, you have to make that a little bit more exciting. So it's like, oh, maybe we'll just blow up the world. Like, who knows? <laughs> um, but well, I did uh, apparently love... Apparently, that was actually one of the things that was true. Um, and I don't know like to how what level it was, but they did actually have to run calculations to make sure that they wouldn't end the world. It just wasn't um, it wasn't Einstein that did them. It was I believe it was the guy who was played by uh, Kenneth Neil Bronner. Gore? No. Uh, yes, I think so. No, it Is was. It Kenneth Bronner? 
Yeah, he played Niels Bohr. Yes, yes, him. I think it was apparently him who did the actual cal- calculation or like reviewed the calculation. Fuchs, but maybe I'm wrong. Too many um, names. Huge cast. <laughs> that's another huge thing cast. I want to bring Lord. up, but I have like multiple points I got to talk about here. Um, okay. So I think part of the reason why they were emphasizing that point around like the chain reaction is like they wanted to tie it back to, you know, they had a nice conversation with Einstein at the end of like, oh, maybe you did start a chain reaction that is going to blow up the world. The chain reaction not being the bomb itself, but the development of the bomb contributing to future bombs, blah, 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 like escalating. So I think that's why they emphasize that a little bit as well, just because it, again, I it doesn't wrap the entire movie in a nice bow for me, but I did like that as like a closing statement on the movie. Um, but going back to the cast, because we all talked about that, um, I wanted to compare this movie to Asteroid City because two movies that have like overwhelming like depth in regards to like supporting characters and the amount of the amount of actors in it asteroid city felt very distracting from like a cameo perspective of like you know jeff goldblum or tilda swinton going in and like it almost like it stops the movie and it's like oh look at this cameo isn't that a wacky character whereas there were like i had to look back at the cast of oppenheimer and be like oh i didn't even realize that person was in it even though like I know this character or I know this actor and it's like, I just thought of them as the character at the time and they fit what the, the movie was trying to tell. So there was a bunch of people that I was like, Oh, I didn't even catch that they were in this. Do you think that's a product more so of, of like how Wes Anderson films are like the standard is that he's always going to have like basically the same 10 or 15 actors in every movie. And you're just looking to see, where he's going to insert these like chess pieces basically and like what scenes he's going to put them in. Whereas for Oppenheimer, yeah, he's worked with some of these actors before, but I mean, when I looked at Josh Peck in the scene, like, yeah, I watched Drake <laughs> and Josh, you know, 20 years ago, but like, I didn't like, I didn't stop to think like, yeah, that's Josh Peck. Cool. Um, to your point, Carson, like it, it did do a really good job of blending in, but I do think that part of it is because of just Wes Anderson style and he just works with the same, the same cast all the time and, and you're almost expecting like where is he going to insert bill murray or jeff goldblum or whoever into into these scenes of the movie and then you you pay special attention to those scenes because you want to see how jeff how jeff goldblum is going to be or how jason sportsman is going to be or whoever else is going to be maybe but i think like christopher nolan i think both movies are an example of like actors are working with these directors because they just want to work with the directors and they're probably working yeah. for cheaper and doing smaller roles than they otherwise would because they just want to work with these people um but christopher nolan is almost taking advantage of that to cast good people in small roles to contribute to his story because he wants to tell the story whereas like it seems like wes anderson is writing the story around being able to put these characters in and so i didn't love asteroid city because it's like what's the point of this movie like this just seems like you're doing your own art experiment whereas like oppenheimer is like okay i'm watching a movie i I, there's a story i'm following here yeah even even when there is like less than a, a, a line of dialogue for each recognizable actor like the only time that kind of took me out of it um was when he met uh when oppenheimer met the president at the end and um at the, and like seeing him, I was like, of course it's Gary Oldman. Like, there's <laughs> no, I can't believe I thought it would be anyone else uh, to to act as the president. And then just like that, that was it. That was the only one. But it was like it was kind of jarring, just knowing, of of course it is. It's a and great turn for him, though. Sorry, huh, sorry. 
great turn for Gary Oldman in, in that role. I, I loved it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that felt Actually, appropriate was... though because it's like he's the president. You have to have a little bit of like gravitas behind him. So it's like I felt like that was still an appropriate casting. Yeah, sure. I for, de- definitely. I, I do agree. It's just like it. It was like a kind of obvious, obvious, not obvious when I finally saw him. And then in that scene, also, I, I just wanted to to shout out like the line where he calls Oppenheimer like a crybaby or something like that. That apparently actually happened, and that yeah. is like shocking to me. Like, what a dick <laughs> yeah i mean like have you guys ever watched um there's like this like oliver stone documentary on netflix it's like called america history or something and he just like goes through america's history from like world war one to like the obama administration he goes yeah. like really deep on harry truman and like talks about him personally and like how his personality was when he was in office and talks a little bit about that and just says like he was he's basically like a little kid uh, and like threw tantrums all the time and, and was just not a nice person to work with. So it doesn't surprise me that he called him a little baby. Oh, geez. Well, by that same vein, do you think um, um, Christopher Nolan cast Casey Affleck as the the scummy um, <laughs> investigator who who just breaks the law to get I, I was to get mentioning that to my wife like right after the movie because she was like, oh, I didn't know he was still acting. But I was like, it's a great casting because you're meant to dislike this character right away and you do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, do you think true. he knows that? Like, do you think um, Casey Affleck knows that? <laughs> Probably has an idea. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I'm just, I'm just here for everyone to hate me. But hey, he's getting <laughs> cast in a Christopher Nolan movie, so it's probably helping Which, his career. Yeah, that's that's also true. Speaking of, it was also really nice to see uh, Alden Ehrenreich. Um, after like, I haven't seen him in anything since Solo. Um, in such like a prestigious oh, man, movie that's true wow wow yeah that's crazy I, I didn't realize that he was on solo wow yeah i, I and he wish did a good that, job too i wish that he had a better role because i was confused as to whether he was supposed to be supporting robert downey jr because he almost seemed like he was a character of like oh shit robert downey jr is so evil and like i'm happy that we're outing you that you're evil and it's like aren't you supposed to be aren't you his aide aren't you you're helping so I was kind of confused, like what the point of his character was. Um, but I, I agree, I'd like to see him in more things because not solo, but I loved seeing him in Hail Caesar. He did a great job in that movie. Oh. well, I mean, I in terms of his character, I I did kind of see like a where it turned. Like he was pretty supportive from the beginning on, but like once everything started like flipping on on Robert Downey Jr., you could see his motivation as to why he wasn't so supportive anymore. Um, I mean, again, like a lot of things in the movie, it happened really fast. But yeah, I mean, I was I was fine with it. <laughs> Were you guys satisfied with like the main performances with with Killian and and RDJ and and Florence and all those other characters? Were you Were you happy with with how those were executed? Yeah, I, I would say everyone did a pretty good job. I would say like the supporting cast definitely enhances it because like none of like if you take away a lot of those supporting characters i feel like they may have tried to push those characters to be a little bit more showy in those roles whereas because you have all this flavor in the background for all these characters it allowed oppenheimer to be kind of more of a a boring character than he might have otherwise been allowed to be um so i felt they worked well together I, i don't know if it would have been as good with just one or the other I don't know. I thought it was really like I, I really thought it was very well acted. Like it's 
um, I mean, just all around. I can't think of one performance that wasn't that wasn't really good. Un- unless I'm just flying high on this movie, but like I, I really <laughs> thought that the performances were really good. I agree. I I, I mean, I I love I love Killian Murphy. I would love to see him in in more things. Uh, I can't imagine like the the personal toll like be, being in this lead role and having to. I forget like what I was reading about how he had to learn like a hundred lines of Dutch for that one scene <laughs> yeah. ger- or German or something. And like, like Matt Damon was talking about how him and him and his like, you know, casting crew would go for dinner and stuff and Killian would just stay alone in his hotel, like reading lines and, and rehearsing <laughs> for, for that scene. So I would love to see him in more things. He, he's amazing. Um, loves him in, in, uh, in a lot, in a lot of things, but yeah, he's great. I loved his role. So the, the two performances that for me felt a little out of place was because uh, you just mentioned him, Matt Damon. Um, it just, I don't know, it, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't like 100%. Um, and then the other one, which wasn't bad performance, but it was just kind of weird to see was Josh Hartnett as a scientist, um, <laughs> which like I know he's getting older and like he technically fits that role, but it just like for me, it seemed out of place, not because of their performance, but more because of like what I associate those actors with. Mm. would you have wanted like um if you were to do a role swap in the movie do you think it would have been appropriate to swap rami malik's character for josh hartnett's character and you wouldn't have blinked an eye probably i also like i didn't do any history behind this but rami malik's character his name is david hill and i was like was david hill in real life an egyptian guy or did they just (laughs) completely change that character um, like, I mean, it's a small role, so like, I don't really care. Um, I was just more curious about no, that. No, definitely not. Born in Boonville, Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I disagree about uh, Matt Damon and Josh Hartnett. Like, especially, it's tough, for, it's tougher for Matt Damon because he's such a recognizable face. But I mean, it's like similar to him and Robert Downey Jr. I, like the way that I see them both in this movie, like Robert Downey Jr., I wouldn't say he's unrecognizable, but like in terms of the performance, I don't see Iron Man or I don't see um, Sherlock Holmes there. Like, I think they, he did a really great job of of being some senator who sucks. Um, and like same with Matt Damon, like I think he played the character well in terms of like his relationship, like to the point where I was focused on the relationship between him and Oppenheimer, which was like what's important between them two and not so much that it's like saving Private Ryan. And then same with um, Josh Hartnett. I think it might be partly because of uh, watching him in Black Mirror where he's an astronaut. Um, but I think that helped me believe him a little more as as a scientist. Um, I mean, otherwise, I it, it didn't take much convincing for me. Like I sure. said, I'm 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 the biggest homer right now on this on this movie. I, I'm being very <laughs> nitpicky one. because it's a very good movie. So like, <laughs> little complaints, little complaints. Yeah. Um. He, here's a kind of unrelated topic that I, I wanted to mention. So a reoccurring theme, if you've seen Tenet and I guess Dark Knight Rises as well in Christopher Nolan movies, is dialogue that you can't really understand what people are saying. Um. But I actually liked it, and I think. I'm actually wondering if it was a creative decision to do like do this intentionally um, because there's a few scenes where they're in, I forget what the city is called, like the, the build, like the fake city that they build to build the bomb. And they're like talking about science stuff and you can't really understand what they're saying, but the soundtrack kind of makes you think like, 
don't worry about what they're saying. And it's like, <laughs> I, like it's a good film technique that you don't just want to tell your audience literally that like, hey, your character is smart. You want to find a way to demonstrate that they are talking about science, that they're smart, brilliant people dealing with complex problems. But you have so much going on in this movie, you don't really want the audience to get bogged down too much in the details. So I noticed there were a few scenes where they actually like showed the characters talking about specific details of building the bomb and different theories for how to solve it. And the soundtrack was kind of loud to the point where you're like, I don't understand what they're saying. And I'm almost wondering if that was a creative decision to just say, hey, we want to demonstrate that they're talking about details. We don't want you to care about the details. Um, Because they did the same thing in Tenet when they were talking about time travel. Like every time they were talking about time travel, the dialogue volume would go down. And it was like, okay, we want you to know that they know. We don't need you to know the details. So, I don't know. It's either a mistake or it's an intentional creative decision, but I liked it, ultimately. Not to mention in Tenet, they were just fully said, like, don't try and understand it. Like, um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah. That was that's actually one one thing that I wanted to bring up in terms of the soundtrack. Like, um, I didn't realize this until the very end of the movie. But my, when we walking out of it, my wife was like, "Did you notice that the music was playing the entire movie? Like, the soundtrack was going the entire movie, uh, aside from like a couple points. Like, for example, there was like silence when uh, he's giving a speech after the bomb, and he's having like visions of like people's flesh melting and all that stuff." Obviously, it's silent there and a couple other times, but otherwise, like, it's throughout the whole movie. And it's, I didn't realize because it was, I felt like it was adding so much in terms of, like, when it would build. And then it's, like, a really intense moment. And, like, um, I just kind of, it kind of just let me along for the ride. So I think it had the intended effect that Carson was describing. I just, like, yeah, I didn't notice that at all until someone called it out to me. Someone, my wife. (laughs) I haven't watched Tenet and I really do want to watch it. And I'm curious to see where, where you guys rank it um, later on. But um, do you think that this created a decision by Christopher Nolan to kind of muffle that dialogue a little bit and, and, you know, up the volume on the soundtrack? Like, do you think he's getting better at this over time? Um, and like with his next feature film release, that's just going to be like more subtly placed and you won't even think about it at that point. I feel like with Dark Knight, like, I mean, I'm curious again to see where you guys rank Dark Knight Rises, um, but it really bothered me the the muffled dialogue and like it, it really took away from from my my viewing experience of that film. Um, whereas in Dunkirk, same thing. Like when he's talking into the radio and the plane, you can't you can't really understand anything he's saying, but that's fine. Like there's so much going on, there's so much suspense happening. Like it's it's a very tense moment. So I I, I kind of I kind of get it there and I appreciate it, but. Um, in Tenet and Oppenheimer, it sort of sounds it was it was deployed similarly, and um, you guys liked the deployment of it in both those films. So I'm curious to, to hear if you think he's getting better at this, and would you want him to continue this practice in other films? It, it is curious because, uh, like, bringing up Dark Knight Rises, like that maybe he was trying to do it and failed it the first time, but like it was not successfully done. Like you, you should be hearing what your main villain is saying. And so the fact that mm-hmm. like, you can't understand what Bane is saying for most of the movie, like maybe that was his first attempt at like, Hey, I, I think this is a creative decision that's going to make movies better. And he just failed at it. And so, yeah, maybe like four or five movies later, he's finally learning the right places and the right volumes to do it. Or maybe it's just, maybe his friend is the sound editor who's really shitty at his job and he just keeps hiring him like who knows <laughs> um but yeah definitely it's it's contributing more to my enjoyment of his movies recently um regardless of whether i enjoy the movies overall 
Um, so if it is an intentional decision, I would say he's definitely getting better at it. Um, I hope if he continues this, that he picks his spots on it. Um, because I don't know, Paul, you're saying like it was going the entire time. Like it'd be nicer to have a few more quiet moments here and there, as opposed to just like going the entire movie like that. Although I will say that it did, it had the effect of like making me not feel like it was a three hour movie. Um, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. For me, I've never really noticed that. Like, I I get what you're saying. I know there was a thing about, like, you don't know what Bane is saying. And, like, in Dunkirk, it's, like, hard to hear what the pilots are saying. But I've never really noticed that in general for, like, any movie. I I, I know when it's a criticism of of a movie, especially for these ones that we've been talking about. I don't know if it's just because I'm, like always so laser focused on what everyone's saying like i'm i really don't want to miss a word so i really focus and it doesn't matter if it's muffled or anything or the volume goes down um that i just don't don't take it in one thing that will come up later that when i don't understand is something like tenant when i just pull out don't understand the movie (laughs) um (laughs) but we'll get into that when you guys like when you guys do a rewatch of film or tv do you guys watch with captions on or captions off? So, yeah, like, I'm, because, I'm because my wife is, like, English second language, like, we have subtitles on all the time anyway. Like, she speaks English just yeah. fine, but, like, we usually just have it on. So I've kind of gotten used to just watching movies like that, even on, like, first run, um, which it, it very much impacts the experience. Like, the art of writing subtitles is an art of itself. Because I think there's sometimes where you're not supposed to understand what the character is saying in a movie. And then when you see the subtitles, it's like, it kind of takes away that, you know, mystery of it. And then sometimes you do catch things that you wouldn't have caught the other time and it actually makes it better because you've understood. So it's a bit of a trade-off, but there's definitely some movies that are better subtitles than other. Um, And when I download any or watch any like international movies and you get like the illegitimate subtitles that aren't proper English um obviously that negatively impacts the experience yeah i'm very much pro pro subtitle now Uh, i'm in the same boat as you where my my fiance is english is a second language too and we're all subtitles now all the time and i just feel like it's completely changed how how i watch tv and film like to the point where i'm I'm going to see oppenheimer in theaters and expecting there to be subtitles i'm just like (laughs) where are the subtitles I, I can't watch this movie without subtitles, but um, I definitely will upon rewatch just to see if, if I missed anything the first time. But uh, that's a good shout out. Tenet is on Netflix, so you can go watch Tenet for the first time with <laughs> oh, yeah, subtitles there you go. on. <laughs> I wonder how long is that one, Tenet? It's it long. seems like it's pretty long. <laughs> it's another like three hour, I think. But about Ooh. the subtitles, do you ever, like with as a subtitles on guy, um, do you ever get annoyed? Like maybe you read too fast and then you... He, uh, you get to the point where they haven't said the line yet, but you know what's about to happen. Does that kind of like ruin things for you? That, yeah, especially yeah. like ar- around like punchlines and stuff. Um, yeah, like jokes. It, like that. Like that's that's pretty tough. Um, you get used to it though. It's just kind of there, like for me, like as a as a backup or like a security blanket in case like I really really can't understand something. Um, or if I'm watching something like very late at night and people are sleeping and I just want to, you know, <laughs> put something on because I, I want to be comfortable and I'll have the subtitles on. Uh, but yeah, it does ruin ruin jokes sometimes, unfortunately. But that's what I mean is like writing subtitles as an art in itself, because if you know that the, you know, people can read ahead, 
you shouldn't have like your two lines of subtitles where people can read. You should display it like one line at a time so that like the people reading it um, kind of experience it in the same way. And I remember I went to watch um, at the Toronto International Film Festival a few years ago, uh, there's that Sound of Metal movie that ended up getting nominated for Best Picture. Um, that's about like guy becoming deaf later in life. And like the the director introduced the film at the beginning and he was saying like, the subtitles were very specifically chosen in a way that somebody who was deaf and reading the movie experienced it in the same way as like somebody who was just listening to it. And so like, I, I feel like nowadays, especially with more international audiences, like I'm hoping that becomes a more developed art where people learn to like write subtitles in a way that enhances your experience. And I think Netflix shows are, are good with that, I find. Like Netflix original, like I feel like their subtitles, not just explaining the words, but also like having the words that explain like what sounds are going on. Like I, I find that really good. they do it better. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of shows I was watching, I forget which ones, where the characters are just going like and the closed captioning says blows raspberries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I almost like spit out my drink of like blows raspberries. Really like it's it's a really funny closed caption. And like, whenever I do that now, I always think to myself, blows raspberries, like, like on the closed captioning. But yeah, I agree. You're getting very descriptive and very good. So uh, we're starting to talk about some of other Christopher Nolan's movies. Do we want to hop into that part of the conversation or do you guys have any closing comments on Oppenheimer? Um, I, I guess like, like, I mean, this, this I think may open a can of worms, but um like philosophically, like like, do you think like the, the movie did anything to impact like the legacy of of both nuclear weapons and like the like then proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world? Like, how how do you feel that movie kind of handled that? I know we talked about it a bit at the beginning, but curious to to hear your takes on it. I I think with the attention span of the world these days, that people are going to be interested this summer, and then nobody's going to care again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with that. I will say, like, the the ending, um, definitely was like was scary. Um, just putting that thought in your head, or like after building to it the entire movie, so it was like definitely effective in that moment. But like, is anything going to change? Probably not from <laughs> from Oppenheimer. Um, yeah, I think that's one thing as a as a recent. Uh, recently becoming a parent that I think about a little bit more because when I've grown up and, and kind of just thought about like how this impacts me, it's like uh, it, it probably won't happen in my lifetime. But then when you think about having like a kid, it's like, oh, is it going to happen in her lifetime? Um, but to be honest, I feel like like I'm pretty pessimistic about the future. Like I think an apocalypse is coming, um, but I don't think it's a atomic bomb apocalypse. Like I think it's, you know, global warming we've already passed the tipping point on that we're just going to have like worse and worse storms and rising sea sea tides and famines and it's like the world is going to go that way um but yeah i think like i do ask myself those questions more when i see movies that pose that question just because of like that angle yeah i mean like i i do find it interesting and nice i guess amidst like how negative things are often that there's there seems to be like the one gentleman's agreement among the entire world that no one's going to use nukes on each other like everyone has them you know a lot of countries have them and they can use them but they just don't because they know how bad it is that's like the one thing that's surprisingly 
nice. Uh, I I guess nice. They have them, but which is not nice, but they don't use them, which is nice. <laughs> it it really just freaks me out though, like how how many there are out there in the world. Like there are like like I think hundreds of thousands of nukes out there on planet Earth, and like that that just that really freaks me out. Um, but I try not to think about that. And Oppenheimer didn't even think about it, but I, <laughs> to Carson's point, I forgot about it until this podcast. Yeah. In terms of how scary they are, like it's also extraordinary when you start reading about some of the defense systems that are out there that like can automatically shoot down missiles and stuff like that. So it's like the technology to defend from these things has also advanced as well, thankfully. I, would that help with a nuke, though? That's more of like... I don't know. I'm okay. I'm going into territory that I know nothing about, so I shouldn't <laughs> say anything. Paulo, any last comments, or is that a wrap for Oppenheimer? No one wants to address the uh, the controversy about um, uh, censoring Florence Pugh's uh, nakedness. Oh, because of because of the Bhagavad Gita. Sorry, because of like like the the Hindu reading that was happening at the same time. Oh, actually, yeah, that was another thing too, apparently, but mostly just because she was naked. <laughs> it it was kind of interesting to see a Christopher Nolan movie where he went like hard R rating on some of these things because like he keeps his movies pretty PG thirteen, and I didn't even realize mm-hmm. that this was rated R. So when that came up, I was like, oh, that's kind of like unexpected. And then I saw the controversy like a day later of like, oh, some. Uh, countries don't want to even show it in the movie so they cgi clothes on her I was like, yeah oh. which is it's always the dumbest thing for me like there's always like so much so many exaggerations leading up to a movie but this would like oppenheimer in particular i think is because of like the marketing arms race between oppenheimer and barbie that just like everything had to like all the news had to upstage each other and then like the week leading up to it oppenheimer was like the oh, this is the best movie of all time. Like, we watched it. We got an advanced screening. This is literally the best movie ever. And, like, uh, Florence Pugh and uh, Killian Murphy are, like, having sex for 30 minutes all naked. <laughs> you see his dick and everything. And, it's like, and then you watch the movie, and it's, like, nothing. Well, maybe I'm desensitized, but it's, like, I mean, I, I get it, kind of. It's And it's for a purpose, though, which is, like, when they're in the middle of the hearing, mm-hmm. and then... Oppenheimer is talking about how he cheated on his wife and it's from her view uh, which is supposed to be like disturbing for her but I don't know it was appropriate to the story like yeah agreed it wasn't like it wasn't gratuitous for the sake of just like oh look at her tits (laughs) yeah it wasn't that Halle Berry and Swordfish (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh wow I completely forgot about that movie wild man it's so bad but Worth worth a rewatch for how bad it is. Yeah, that's a that was a hard left turn from uh, from Christopher Nolan and Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought we'd bring up Swordfish? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna transition us to the uh, to the second half of the conversation, which is there are Christopher Nolan has now made eleven feature length films. We are now gonna do a ranking of all of them. Uh, so the way that we're gonna do this is we're gonna talk about so there's 11, we're all going to say what our number 11 is, and then we're all going to say what our number 10 is, and we're going to kind of figure out how we talk about each one as we go along. Um, 
obviously, hopefully, there's going to be some difference of opinion here. Um, we do not know each other's list, so we don't know what people think about at this point. Um, but I will get into it by simply saying our first entry on the list, you guys have not seen. I have seen it. It's my <laughs> least favorite, so we're not really going to talk about it that much, uh, which is the movie Insomnia. Uh, if you have not seen Insomnia, like you two guys, I do recommend it. it it's still like the worst Christopher Nolan movie is still a really good movie. Um, and it was early in his career, but it was a year after Memento. So he was still like, like he was making good movies at that time. Um, pretty good performance by Al Pacino. It's kind of got those same like psychological angles that Memento has. I think Memento is probably most what I, what I would compare it to in like his filmography. Um, but that said, it's not like... Christopher Nolan has a certain gravitas that he has in all his movies, and like Insomnia is not that. It's very just like here's a standard, pretty good movie, um, but not much to talk about there. So, the only thing I will say about Insomnia is that I mixed it up originally. So the whole reason why I didn't see it is I thought I had already seen it because Robin Williams is in it, and I mixed it up with 15 Minute Photo, I think, which is another movie that Robin Williams is in uh is that what it's called Where he he's was like it was like 30 or 60 or, minute photo or something like that yeah yeah he's the killer right mm -hmm. he's, he's not really a, oh no sorry one hour photo he's not really he's not a killer he's just like he works at like some pharmacy developing photos and then he gets like obsessed with a certain family like from uh, developing and looking at their photos um and then it turns out in the end oh spoiler alert it turns out in the end that he's like he was abused as a kid and that's why he's all um the way he is but i thought i thought insomnia was that movie and i was like yeah i've seen this i can talk about it and then it wasn't <laughs> it came out the same year as insomnia so there you go to add to the confusion <laughs> yeah he was doing that like serious time in his career where you know he wanted didn't want to be the comedian anymore uh but the, the kind of last thing i'll say about insomnia is like part of it is he goes to alaska where they they basically don't have nighttime for certain months of the year because there's the sun doesn't drop below the horizon so it becomes more of like a psychological of like are these weird things going on or is he going crazy because he can't sleep and like all this stuff so it, it, it does have some interesting like again paralleling it to memento of like putting you in the person's shoes of what they feel like going through that experience not just like the story itself um but yeah it's all right I am still going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's worth watching. Me too. So let's get started, I guess, with the rest of our list then at number 10. Um, Tony, you're the only one who didn't see 10, so maybe you can comment on yours just through your lack of having seen it, which I guess we've already spoiled in the last conversation. Yeah, it, it'll be 10 at, uh, at number 10. I do want to watch it, um, but please feel free to drop spoilers if you guys have a similar ranking at 10. Uh, I don't mind. Uh, but I definitely will will endeavor to watch it. I, I do want to watch it, uh, and I do generally enjoy his film, so we'll try to watch it. I would definitely highly recommend it. Like I, I can comfortably speak about it and why I ranked it at 10 without spoiling anything, partly because I still, to this day, don't fully understand it. Um, I And this is going to be a theme throughout the whole rest of the list. Like the They're ranked in order, yes, but the margin between a lot of them is like nothing. Like they're all, I, I, I like all of these movies. I don't, I'm not ranking Tenet number 10 because I don't like it as much as I still don't understand it. I, I respect the attempt 
and just like what he was doing and just how different it was and it was still enjoyable to watch um but it i lose it, it loses major points for being a little too convoluted to just kind of casually enjoy yeah, I, I don't have 10 at that low, so I'll talk about it a bit more in a, a few more spots. <laughs> um, but I would say, like, my general impression of Tenet is just don't worry about the details too much. Like, I think what people don't like is they had a hard time following along because there's just so much, like, convoluted shit that's going on. But I think it's better experience if you just sit back and be like, okay, I'm going to vaguely be aware of what the details are, <laughs> and I'm going to emotionally follow this movie. And I think if you do that, there's some fun characters, there's some fun, like, set pieces, and you can just, like, enjoy those for what it is. And then, like, after the movie, you can read about it and be like, oh, I missed that thing, I missed that thing. And it's like, it's okay that you missed it during the movie. It didn't interfere with your enjoyment of it. Yeah, I, and that's how I enjoy it. The only thing I will say is, like, even after reading, like, all those articles, like, oh, Tenet explained, ending explained, all that stuff there's still parts of it that I just can't wrap my head around. Um, and I like, I get the story. It all makes sense from beginning to end. It's just the extra stuff that I really want to know. I just can't get it. <laughs> and I don't think I'm a dumb person. <laughs> uh, but my number 10 movie, which you don't have to talk about too much. Cause we just talked about it a whole lot uh, is Oppenheimer. Um, what? And I will echo your statement on, they're all very good movies and they're all very close. So like I still quite enjoyed the movie, but I enjoyed all the other ones more. So it's not to say that it's a bad movie. I just like, again, the fact that it wasn't wrapped up in a nice bow for me, the fact that it's like, what's the point of this movie? Um, it came down to like, here's a more of like good individual scenes and individual performances, as opposed to like some of his other things, I think just come together a bit more. There's yeah. I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead here, but Tony, do you where are is this close to where your I'm assuming it's not close to where your rating for Oppenheimer was, but how like high <laughs> is it on your list? Because I feel like we could just get out of the way right now. <laughs> it it's not it's not in the top three. Um, okay, but it, it is in my top five. Okay, I had it second. There's a, definitely a bit of recency wow. bias there, but I I I stand by that. At least. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll get into that, I guess. Okay. Um, let's let's keep the same order going. So Tony and then Paul, then me for uh, what's your number nine selection? Yeah, number nine is Dark Knight Rises. Um, for the reasons we discussed previously, um, the audio stuff with Bane, Bane being the main villain, really would like a like a, a more clear, like crisper, like resolution on that voice coming back coming out of Bane, like. You might as well have been Bane from Batman and Robin. Um, I mean, obviously it's, it's Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy's great, um, but really tough to follow along in the movie when you can't understand what Bane's saying. And gen genuinely, I feel like it. I I wasn't satisfied with it with it with the movie as a whole as a conclusion to the to the trilogy that he did. Um, I really didn't like the inclusion of of Talia Al Ghul. Um, really didn't care for like the the plot as a whole with Bane being the main guy and Natalia like being that prisoner and that weird prison camp that, that <laughs> Bruce was taken to and Bruce literally breaks his back and he just does 10 pushups and he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he's fine. Um, so like, yeah, I, you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit, but um, overall it was not satisfied with, with the film as a whole. 
I am a big fan of Dark Knight Rises uh, <laughs> very much. So I think Dark Knight Rises suffered a lot from expectations as well, because you have Batman Begins and then Dark Knight, which basically was like in the process of revolutionizing the entire like comic book movie, which is still you know a genre that's going on today. And then Dark Knight Rises was a bit adventurous on how they wanted to do things. They didn't want to do cinematic universe. They were a bit more like they wanted to close off and tell a story. They made changes to some of the characters. I think people weren't ready for it, but if you sit back and just watch it as its own movie, I think it's quite good and has a lot of like fun things that don't get explored enough in like comic book movies today. So I, uh, it's, it's definitely higher on my list than number nine. It's slightly higher on my list than number nine. Um, so, but I, I disagree uh, a, a bit well, quite a bit with with uh, how you feel about it, Tony. Um, I I went into the movie just like with the attitude, like, oh my god, this is all awesome! Like, this is amazing. Uh, is, is there a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense? Yes, one hundred percent. Like you mentioned, the the weird prison where Bane somehow flies him to somewhere in the Middle East, <laughs> drops him in a hole. He heals his back, escapes, leaves the desert, flies back to Gotham, all in the span of like a day. Yeah, that is like the biggest, the biggest red flag for me. But other than that, like I, it was, I, I enjoyed it from beginning to end. That being said, it's only one rank higher. My number nine is actually Batman Begins. Ooh, wow. Yeah. You're gonna need to justify <laughs> that one. I mean, it, it's it's a, probably the least memorable for me. I think it's still a good movie. Um. I actually that pretty much just that's what it hinges on it I, I know it's a good movie I remember it but like no, there's nothing in particular that stands out about it that makes me like elevate it over some of the other ones is that satisfact a satisfactory uh reasoning for you I, I think it does a really good job of, of, of establishing like a very strong foothold for the trilogy. Um, I, I actually recently watched it a couple of days ago. Um, and sure, Katie Holmes's performance aside, and and maybe like a, a bit a bit of the ending aside, um, like the first like hour of of establishing like Christian Bale as Batman and him kind of like work, working with with Liam Neeson there for a little bit, like it, it's it's amazing. Um, I really, really, really like that that piece of it, and and I, I quite enjoyed that in the beginning. It's a bit higher on the list for me. Uh, not that much higher, albeit, but definitely a, a little higher than where you have it, Paulo. That's yeah, fair. I, I definitely enjoyed that slow build, and I think that came out in those years where like every superhero movie was an origin story, and I think people have started to get sick of that, and they've started to like want to do other things. And you see characters being introduced in Marvel and whatnot that are, it's like they're already like Spider Man never had an origin story with. Uh, Holland or whatever his name is. It was just like, hey, here he is, and now we're going to do the adventures. But I, I, I'm a sucker for the origin story still, and I think Batman Begins was a, probably one of the best versions of it out there. I imagine it's pretty high on Carson's list. It's uh, it's definitely a few spots higher. <laughs> okay. um, my number nine is Dunkirk. Um, oh. And it's just like, again, a bunch of good individual stories and i understand the theme that it's coming together around but it's like tom hardy has his like fun little thing that's going on and harry styles has his little fun thing that's going on and it's like i get that the like the theme that they're talking about in regards to war and what the point of all this was and blah 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 but it just like for me it was again 
they're all very good movies. It's not like I didn't enjoy it, but it was just like, I enjoyed being in the theater for two or three hours or however long it was. And then I left the theater and didn't really care after that. All right. <laughs> That's, uh, <laughs> I, Tony, <laughs> you had, I think you had the biggest reaction to that one. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to spoil too much of, uh, my rankings to come later on, but I, I, I really quite enjoyed Dunkirk. Um, it, I feel like I, like I lost years of my life with watching that movie in the theaters. It was just such a, such a tense, like film going experience for me. Um, not like Lisa, Lisa, because like just a brilliant score and like that, like that constant kind of building of tension that the score made you feel, um, when you're watching the movie. And I think that that really contributed to my, my enjoyment of the film. Like story aside, I think what you're saying, Carson, is valid that they're like these little vignettes that sure, they're all really well done, um, but as a cohesive story, doesn't necessarily come together maybe as much as, as other films do, but um, it did evoke a feeling for me when I was watching it that I don't think many of his other films have evoked for me when I was watching it in film in theaters. Yeah, I, I think for me, it comes down to like, when I look at the list I have here, the top five or six movies are like masterpieces and there's things that set them apart and there's like, they, there's things that take them over the top. And then there's like the bottom five, which are just like, eh, they're good movies, but there's just not nothing to get me really excited about them. And I think that's how I feel about Dunkirk is like, I'm not going to say a lot of bad things about it. It's just like, there's nothing that really makes me excited about it as a whole. Sorry. And this is nine, right? We're currently at number nine. Yes. Okay, I'm getting confused now. <laughs> I, I'm writing these down so I can make an Instagram post of this after. So I'm trying to keep track. Okay. Um, all right, let's let's move on to number eight. Tony, what do you got in number eight? Um, number eight, I'm gonna go with with the Prestige on this one. Um, oh. It's a great movie. I re I really really enjoyed this movie quite a bit, uh, and it's a favorite of my fiance's as well. Um, Particularly, I, I loved David Bowie's turn as, as Nikola Tesla, uh, and I love that whole scene. It's, it's awesome. Um, but it's just not really a memorable film for me. Um, I would definitely go back and watch it again, for sure. Um, but there are other films on this list that I think I would watch sooner than The Prestige. And this another movie came out at the same time as The Prestige. I think it was called... Um, it was like Paul Giamatti um, or something, some other magician. Yeah, no, the Illusionist. Was, yeah, The yeah. Illusionist with Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti. Um, I remember watching that movie first before The Prestige, and so I think it kind of soured my my experience by the time <laughs> I watched The Prestige and just like another magician movie that takes place in like the 1800s or something. Like, great. Uh, so I think that that uh, that took it down a few notches for me, and I, and I did really like The Illusionist when I watched it the first time, um, but. That'd actually be an interesting side-by-side -side to do the Prestige and Illusionist back-to-back -back and see how they hold up. Um, but that's why it's so low for me, despite David Bowie's amazing turn as, as Tesla. <laughs> Oof. Okay, so by that that same theme, like with the the dynamic between the Prestige and the Illusionist, what did you like better, uh, Armageddon or Deep Impact? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, it's, been, it's been a really long time since I've seen both. Um, so I'm just going to say Armageddon out of respect for Bruce Willis. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have the prestige significantly higher, so I'm going to save comments on that one. I I have it fairly high as well. Uh, my number eight was 
wait, number eight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dark Knight. Dark Knight Rises. Did I say that already? No. Nope. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting so lost. <laughs> um, the Prestige, I really like. Um, I think it's going to be above a movie that may surprise you. Um, it's usually, and it's not the type of thing that I usually am super interested in, but just like the the like them going back and forth. And like them trying to kind of upstage each other and figure out each other's tricks. I really enjoyed that. Like that was a lot of fun for me. And um, uh, the twist was like mind blasting. Um, it's it's a movie that I, I often recommend when there's someone who like knows a lot of Christopher Nolan, but hasn't seen like everything. Uh, it's it's a, a bit of a go to for me. Are you talking about Dark Knight Rises or The Prestige still? Sorry, The Prestige. I'm talking about The Prestige. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. do you have any comments on dark knight rises i mean nothing from what i've already said like it pretty much some it's pretty much summed up from when i was like oh i went into it like oh this is all awesome even though um some of it didn't make sense bane was right. super cool the the um what's it called the the trend of like talking like bane was a lot of fun like talking to your mug um I had a lot of fun with that, <laughs> but uh, it's still fairly low on my list compared to his other movies. All right. Well, I'll talk about Dark Knight Rises shortly. Uh, my number eight, which we've already talked about a couple times, Tenet. So Tenet was a little bit higher than you guys. You guys both had it at 10. I have it at number at eight. Um, just because, like, I think similar to <laughs> Dunkirk, like, it just didn't really wrap up properly. Like, there's a lot going on. It was a little bit convoluted. Um, I enjoyed a lot of like the individual characters like Robert Pattinson, who I've sung praises on this podcast many times about, um, did a great job. John David Washington did a phenomenal job in that entire movie. So like, again, a lot of, a lot of good individual performances and like really fun set pieces that made it feel like something different, like just different approaches to how you do an action scene, the whole like things going in reverse while they're going forward was just like interesting. So, um, even though it didn't piece together for me, it was just like a really fun experience. So good enough to get to number eight, not good enough to get much higher than that. You know, actually, I'm breaking rules here, but I, I feel like the more I think about Tenant, the more I remember it, I feel like I'm, I've penalized it too much for my own ignorance. <laughs> um, and I think it jumps above like Batman Begins and Dark Knight Rises. So I think that puts it at like eight or seven for me too, but... I, I got too many notes on my page, so when I do the Instagram <laughs> post, it's staying at number 10 for you. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> All right. We're, uh, moving on to number seven now. Tony, what do you got at number seven? The Dark Knight. Ooh. Oh. Um, you got to explain this one. <laughs> I, I, like, I grew up, obviously, like watching the Batman animated series. Um, I grew up watching like the original Batman movies too. Like I'm not here to say and wax poetic that I think Jack Nicholson's performance as the Joker was better than Heath <laughs> Ledger's. It wasn't, it was totally different. And I appreciate his performance just like I appreciate Heath Ledger's. I just think that um, there are two very weak performances in the Dark Knight that it's really hard for me to now watch the Dark Knight and view it as a masterpiece when I think Aaron Eckhart's performance and Maggie Gyllenhaal's performances, like they just they flat out don't do it for me. I think they really suck in this movie. <laughs> um, and and I also don't like the 
like the romantic ties between Bruce and uh, and Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. Um, and I don't like how like that kind of sets up like Aaron Eckhart's origin story as Two Face and uh, how he's like pressed with this decision to make. Like, does he save Aaron Eckhart? Does he save Maggie Gyllenhaal's character? Um, it just didn't really do it for me, and, and that that really weighs the movie down for me and puts it so low. That being said, we'll still rewatch it, you know, a million times over. We'll still be happy to watch it. We've said it a million times throughout. Like, it's not a bad movie. None of these are bad films. Um, it's just, it's lower than Batman Begins for me. I'm a real, real sucker, as Carson said, for origin stories, for beginnings. Uh, I do like Batman Begins more than Dark Knight uh, and Dark Knight Rises. But uh, those performances in Dark Knight really, really weighed down for me. That's a pretty hot take, backed yeah. up by decent reasoning. <laughs> uh, I'll agree with you and Maggie Gyllenhaal, like especially because they recast the character. Like it just, she felt out of place in that movie. Um, completely different disagree on Aaron Eckhart. I thought he nailed that role, um, especially with like how Two Face had been done in the past as kind of like a goofy character and kind of made it a bit more sympathetic. Um, I don't know. I loved his performance. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I don't want to spoil where I put it, but it's significantly higher. It's a bit higher for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I would take like everything that I said about Dark Knight Rises and multiply it by 50. And that's how I feel about Dark Knight. Actually, the good stuff I'd multiply by 50, the stuff that doesn't make sense, I'd only multiply that by like (laughs) 1.5. Yeah, I, I was thinking about so these rankings in advance, and like when it comes to the Dark Knight, like I had to, I had to try to convince myself it wasn't as good as it is because it holds a certain place in of nostalgia for me. Just like I think I was eighteen, nineteen when it came out, and it's like I don't know. In the same way that the Phantom Menace came out at the perfect time for the age that I was, like I was that target audience. Like Dark Knight came out at kind of that perfect time in my life where it kind of like revolutionized what I thought about comic book movies and what they could be. And I kind of had to like ask myself like, okay, was it that good? Like, you know, were these things like you're just imagining them better than they are? So I did some thinking about that and I'll get on later to how high I ended up putting it. But yeah, (laughs) it's not just the movie for me. It's like, there's something special about it for me. I, I will say I'll take away points for how um, how much it made um, weird guys love the Joker. <laughs> um, in not that like I like he was a great Joker. Heath Ledger did great, but like there's like a a group of people who like made that this is who I am now, <laughs> and yeah. I take that away that I hold that against the Dark Knight. Um, that being said, obviously Heath Ledger's performance amazing. The Joker is amazing uh, in the movie, um, and I think the marketing behind it when he uh, when the first like five minutes or so, like the bank heist at the beginning, was screened before other movies, was like the best endorsement of that movie that Christopher Nolan ever could have done. That I think that just uh, that uh, exploded the hype for me. And it just made the movie even more exciting to watch uh, at the time. Yeah, it's kind of weird how even Joaquin Phoenix's Joker has like the same attachment, like people have the same attachment to it. And it's like, you guys may have missed the point of these characters a little bit. (laughs) They're not good people. (laughs) But there wasn't the same attachment with Jack Nicholson's Joker, I feel like, back in the day. Definitely not. Uh, He played it a very different way, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, he was he was a literal clown almost. Well, not a okay, not a literal clown, but <laughs> um, I get there's like connections to how society is and oh. Uh, life is hard, that kind of thing. But like, you're going a little too far there with the uh, the idolization of the Joker. It's weird with like how many different adaptations of the Joker we've had now, and how many people have taken it to the extreme. And like, they've still never done a comic adapt like accurate version of the Joker. Like, it's still everything is very different than what you see in the comics. <laughs> Unless the except for the animated ones. Yeah, like the animated's get it a little bit better. Yeah. All right, Paul, what's your number seven? Uh, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. Um, my number seven is Dunkirk. Um, uh, middle of the pack. Um, I, I guess th- this is going to sound like just a horrible thing to say, but I, I, I want... No, I can't, I can't even say it. I was going to say I want a little war, a little more war in my war movies. <laughs> um, um, I'll, I'll walk that back a little and say, like, I just... As a cinematic experience, like as a film, it's great. Like I recognize that. Um, I was, I guess, I had the wrong expectations. I was like looking for a little more action. Um, um, and the one thing that not confused me, but I felt was unnecessary. But in the long run, I feel like okay, it made sense. Is the whole splitting up the different stories in different lengths of time is like one day, one week, uh, one hour like between um between the pilots and like the guys on the beach and stuff like that i mean i get what he was doing but i felt like i I remember at the time watching dunkirk i was like christopher nolan can't just do a straight end-to-end movie like he has to have something like (laughs) some weird quirk about it or something like really like a twist or something and i was like this is this is the one for this one and it took me out of it a little bit it's like minor nitpick but um yeah otherwise like like i said as a as a film it's it's great um but not uh not what i was hoping for and it was it was fine i enjoyed it at at the end it was kind of like similar to what carson said it was just like i walked out of like going mm, it's good and it may have also suffered by coming out in recent like also in recent years 1917 and all quiet on the western front which in my opinion were better world war one movies um i don't like i think this one came out first so you wouldn't have been thinking about that while going in but looking back on it i think that kind of influences it a bit for me as well yeah but i mean to your point the second i watched 1917 i completely forgot about dunkirk so (laughs) that uh i think that definitely strengthens the argument 1917 has a little more war in your war movie for you (laughs) i just want to see people dying and people (laughs) suffering is that too much to ask Um, okay, my my number seven, Dark Knight Rises. A uh, little higher than you guys, not too much higher. It's still like the le- least good of the of the Batman trilogy. Um, again, I I liked it better when I watched it like two or three years after it came out in theaters because I think I was a little disappointed. But just like seeing the things of them actually killing off, you know, a superhero at the end, which I don't believe that he survived. I believe they actually killed him off. I interpret that ending differently. Um, the Bane like twist and the Talia Al Ghul like I thought those were appropriate. I kind of liked those stories that they had going there and just just like apocalyptic Gotham City. Like I love when they like a lot of movies threaten apocalyptic city and so like to see someone actually go through it and go through with it and be like what would it actually be like and then they show the 
the, the fake courtrooms that Scarecrow runs, like in the comics. Like mm-hmm. I love those aspects of the comics. So to see that on the screen was great. Um, and yeah, just even like the police chief uh, and his little like story that he had during it, like really good movie. Um, it's still at number seven. So it's not like everything one to six is like masterpiece for me. So this is kind of like right on the edge, not quite a masterpiece, but not as bad as other people think it is in my opinion. Can I just say that's a great track record for like seven of your 11 feature length movies are like masterpieces. Yeah. By Carson standards. That's <laughs> Well, that's number amazing. six is going to be debatable here. Number six has lots of problems, <laughs> but we'll get to that in a couple minutes. Okay, uh, okay. Tony, what's your number six? Uh, I'm going to put Inception at number six. Um, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> great like like great like great like theater going experience and like similar to my experience with interstellar um pretty sure i was high as a kite when i saw this in a the theater <laughs> it was wonderful uh completely blew my mind um i don't feel that it has like great rewatch value especially just knowing that like you you know what's going to happen you know the twist you know that mall is, you know, is, is sort of like a, a bit, bit crazy. And you know, what's, you know what to expect with that. From our previous conversation on, the, on this podcast, I, I do like that the ending is obviously up to interpretation. Uh, and I do appreciate that that happened and we didn't get that in Oppenheimer. Um, but I still have it at number six. Um, just, I don't, I'm not running to rewatch it anytime soon. I will, uh, but it does, doesn't have like very high rewatch value for me. Wow, that's interesting. Like the, the... I, especially with the rewatch value, I'll disagree with that because I will watch that like over and over again. It's not so much um, like the twist. I feel like the twist is a lesser part of Inception rather than like a really well-built concept. And um, like just something so potentially complicated, but being able to tell the story around that and still have it make sense, I think um, really elevates it for me. I'm like I'm taking personal um uh, offense because <laughs> I, I, um <laughs> um I'm just going to say it, it's my number 1. Um so there's um That's fine. I'm, I'm joking. I don't ta- I don't take offense, but like I yeah, I I disagree quite a bit with <laughs> with the ranking um I don't know, it's just and I think it's one of the even though I'd seen other Christopher Nolan movies before it, I think it was at the time, it was like the first next level, just like something that you've really never, ever seen before type movie for me. Um, and it was just like, and it was that, but also accessible. Like it was just, it's like a mainstream, sorry, mainstream movie like that to, sorry, to that level. I'm not even making sense anymore. That's how upset I am. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I am similarly upset, and it's going to be much higher on my <laughs> list. Um, disagree with basically everything you said about it. Um, it it kind of, like, in my opinion, it's almost so good that it made Tenet and some of the other things worse because Tenet is, like, a really high-concept movie that's really fun, but it doesn't tie itself together. And it's like, if there wasn't an example of a movie out there that did tie itself together, you could just say, oh, high-concept, just go with the flow. But it's like... Inception is out there. Inception is that super high concept and you wrap it together and you have it make sense emotionally and story-wise and sci-fi-wise and set-piece-wise. Um, so I'm going to talk about this more before <laughs> I go on a rant again. But yes, uh, needless to say, a little bit higher opinion than you. 
Tony, I appreciate yeah. your perspective. I swear we didn't bring yeah. you on here just to rip you apart. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's totally fair. And I'm, I'm completely willing to admit that I could completely be wrong on Inception. Um, I want to rewatch a lot of these movies, um, especially now knowing your rankings and where you're going to place them. Uh, I think I think it'll it'll give me a different perspective on them too. Uh, so I'm pretty keen to to rewatch Inception as well hey. and and maybe yeah. do a re-ranking of my own. You, you hey, can never be all. wrong I mean, about your own rankings. Your opinion is your opinion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm probably going to make Carson really mad soon, um, but we'll get to that. <laughs> and I'm going to stand by. Yeah, we're uh, we're, we're going to talk about Inception later, so we can uh, move on to your number six then. Uh, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. My number six is Memento. <laughs> um, uh, this is where I, I think this is around the territory where all of these are I, I know we said at the beginning they're all really good movies number six to one is like for me they're all amazing movies um memento uh falls victim to the recency bias that i mentioned um a little bit it's been a long time that being said i i still remember the twist i still remember the story and everything and like how the story was to- told um was amazing even at that age that I watched it, which I is not normally the type of thing that I would watch. Like I would be watching normally Starship Troopers or something <laughs> just to watch bugs get blown up. Um, and then I remember Memento blowing my mind. Um, that being said, it's just, I, I mean, I just enjoy the other movies better on my list. It's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I guess... <laughs> All right, all right. A little lower than I thought, but that's okay. I knew it. <laughs> I, I said it right before I gave my ranking. It, it's not as high as you would think on mine, but I mean, like, we okay. don't have that many left to go. Like, I'm not. I I can see why people like, especially with what people expect of Christopher Nolan today. If Christopher Nolan released Memento today, people would be like, "What the fuck is this?" Like, it's not three hours long. It doesn't have this climax scene. Like, it's completely different. But it's it's very grounded in like those psychological elements that make it just really interesting with how he shot it. That makes you feel like you are how the main character feels. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if it was released today, like people, like everyone with no memory or no idea that um, uh, Memento exists, if it was released, today, I think it would still do really well. I think it would I do really be, well. Just people refreshing. wouldn't expect it. Yeah. Well, I think it'd yeah. be refreshing. People are expecting, like you said, Carson, like a three-hour, you know, long movie from Christopher Nolan that's super hard to follow. Memento, like it's not. I mean, from what you're describing, it's not Tenet hard to follow, um, and, and like <laughs> does have an, a non-linear perspective on the storyline. But at least it's an hour and a half. I, I yeah, and I think one thing that kind of works against it today, like it, if it were released today, obviously, I think the cloud would solve a lot of his problems. Um, or just have <laughs> being able to save information somewhere. Um, so maybe it wouldn't hold up as well unless it was like a, a period piece. <laughs> or you just watch original Memento. <laughs> um, all right. So my number six, which is the only movie that none of us have mentioned so far. And this is the one that's, I would say, not quite masterpiece. Everything above this, I would say, is definite masterpiece. This one is borderline, is Interstellar. Um, there is a lot of things I love about Interstellar. Um, like just 
the like the design obviously like the sound like the soundtrack i listen to all the all the time um for me the one thing that just really holds it back is like what the fuck's going on at the ending and like <laughs> not just because i'm okay love, with man. plot being confusing but it's like to say oh it's all about love like it's like what the fuck <laughs> Uh, it, it annoys me because it was such a good movie until that point and like just like fell so flat but like so i have to rewatch it and just like not care about the ending because there's so many good things going on in that movie just the last 10 15 minutes i don't like <laughs> it did come out of left field like the whole like love stuff i mean you could argue that um there were there were themes peppered throughout the movie about love like oh he loves murph and uh casey affleck loves his family to the point where he'll let them suffocate and die um from the dust storms or whatever and and so similar what we've said about other movies like i do appreciate that it is tied together like it is like hey you took all these things and made it make sense i just disagree with what you wrapped it up (laughs) with (laughs) yeah it's fair I disagree, but it's fair. But yeah, borderline <laughs> masterpiece. Still, still extremely good, and again, like probably one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard. Yes, that's a big plus, Tony. I actually am curious to where because not like Carson said, neither of us have mentioned this one yet. I'm curious to where you put Interstellar. Um, it's in my top three. Um, I was telling my my boss today at work that when I saw this, similar to my experience with Inception, I was. It was borderline like a religious experience for me in theaters. Like <laughs> I was like, like flying flying out of my seats either from from the the weed cookie that I had uh, an hour before <laughs> I, I watched it, or uh, just because of the plot. And I agree with Carson's points on the soundtrack, but I'm also just a sucker for like dystopian um, like fiction and novels and sci-fi as well. Uh, so I really like the depiction of like an Earth that's failing, the crops are failing, like we just we need to leave. Like, it's, it's really bad uh and, and i do you know see that as our future i'm, I'm also a pessimist I, I share you know carson's views on that uh so I, I i really think it's not refreshing but I, I think it's more realistic to have a movie from what when did it come out 2012 2014 depict 2014 depict a you know a movie be like or the earth be like that so it's only going to be more more real and, and creepier to, to rewatch that movie uh in the years to come uh just knowing you know what, what's going to unfold on planet earth in the years to come the uh the one thing that i think is kind of prophetic about how the apocalypse might happen on earth not if but how is like michael kane's character basically realizing there's no solution and just trying to find a way to keep humanity sane and working towards a common goal well we die out it's like i i can see that happening um although i wonder if humanity has enough discipline to like even do that much but it's like (laughs) geez it's getting dark (laughs) um okay cool yeah i'm 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 more on the same page as as uh as you tony for for interstellar i mean i i fully understand the whole like love stuff coming out of nowhere in the last 15 minutes um and anne hathaway she's she's really trying to sell it (laughs) um with her little monologue at the end but um i mean i i think everything else about the movie is enough and cool enough and enjoyable enough for me to, to just to elevate it and look past that part and 
uh, it's touched on. It was touched on already, but the soundtrack. I absolutely love the soundtrack for Interstellar. Um, it's I, I have I have most of it on my my Apple Music, and it's not. It's just like like atmospheric noise. <laughs> the um. So there's there's that one meme that's online where it's like. Uh, oh, Hans, can you just make like a, a casual soundtrack for us for a docking scene? And then it has that meme of like the guy on like the piano on the, the beach, like on fire. And it annoys me when anyone uses that meme for anything other than Hans Zimmer in Interstellar, because that's the only movie that justifies like that meme. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Duel of the Fates may be a close second, but like everything else is like you picked the wrong song. It's like. I saw that meme. Somebody used it for the uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie for Jack Black's like song of peaches. Oh, peaches! And it's like, come on, don't even don't even compare. <laughs> okay, that's fair. When you put it like that. All right, I think we're at number five uh, with Tony. Yeah, um, we've already talked about it ad nauseum, but Oppenheimer is number five for me. Um, I just enjoyed the other movies that are in my top four way more than Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was still wonderful. Um, we've already talked about a great cast top to bottom. Um, my only critique on it, and we didn't, I didn't really touch on this at the beginning was just that I can appreciate a biopic. I can appreciate the source material, but um, I enjoyed the other movies in my top four for their originality and i'm sure they were based on something um maybe at least a little bit but um the fact that it's a biopic kind of kind of weighs it down for me a little bit but still very well done um but i'm not going to put it in my top four or top three that's fair um yeah i mean i'm not going to add anything to oppenheimer even though it's i haven't mentioned it yet (laughs) um but uh the I've also said my piece about the prestige. That's my number five. Um, um, I don't need to add anything about it. <laughs> if you're listening and I, I know you and um, you're looking for a movie recommendation, um, prestige. <laughs> well, didn't expect prestige to go that low for both of you. Interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, I got it quite a bit higher. Oh. Although we are getting in the, the top half of the list here, so I don't know. Any other comments on Prestige? No. <laughs> okay. My number five is Batman Begins. Um again, really solid movie. Just hard to justify it like any higher than this. It's more a result of just like my top four just I just love that much more. Um probably also this high because i'm like a dc fanboy and so just like having them do such good things with so many characters yeah we we talked about it a bunch i'm not going to add too much more it's just a really solid origin story um that gets the characters right and i I love when comic book movies were grounded um there's those recent screenshots of wolverine in the new deadpool movie where he's like yellow and people are like oh it's so amazing to see like comic book characters in like the comic origin suits but like I loved when X-Men had like black leather suits and I loved in like, you know, everything in Batman <laughs> Begins was like dark and gritty and realistic. Um, so hopefully the world gets there. They're full of color for the next four or five years. And then we can go back to these gritty movies at some point. 
I think we're so number four for Tony. Number four, yeah. Yeah, yeah number four, Batman Begins. That's for me. Um, for me, like I, I, I enjoy it the most out of out of the trilogy. Um, probably just because I, I, I really genuinely enjoy the start of things. I, I really enjoy early seasons. Um, with TV, it's a bit of a hard comparison because generally, as as TV shows progress, they get worse. Um, like Seinfeld's a good example, but. I love early season Seinfeld. I love the origin of the characters. You're, they're establishing like who they are and you, you're kind of learning a bit about them. Um, we already know Batman's origin story pretty well at this point, but um, I still think it just does a great job of setting the stage for the re- remainder of the trilogy. And um, yeah, I just, I really, really enjoy that movie. And oftentimes I find myself going back to rewatch that one out of the trilogy and not the Dark Knight and not the Dark Knight Rises. Oh really? Despite, despite me knowing the origin, like yeah, yeah, like through and through, like I know what's gonna happen. Like I, I know how how Batman's origin story started, but I don't know. I I just I really 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 love beginnings, and I'm not sure what what that says about me, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's number four for me. Also, one thing that it has going on for it is it has a nice like training montage sequences, and I remember um, when. The Last Jedi was coming out and everyone was talking about how it was going to be a copy of Empire because Force Awakens was a copy of New Hope and everyone was getting excited because it's like oh we, we're going to get another training movie and you have like these wonderful like training montages um, or like a character being taught something by a mentor um, and then that, The Last Jedi just falling completely on its face in that regard um, but I, I love me some training montages and like mentor sequences like that and I was excited for Last Jedi and I actually still do like those scenes in that movie um just not the movie as a whole somehow palpatine returned yeah. <laughs> no one's ever really gone um yeah i mean those, that's that's totally fair i i mean it's it's weird because the 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 argument you gave around rewatching, despite the the twist uh tony like that's how i feel about um uh, Dark Knight Rises, for example, I mean, maybe not to the same extent, obviously, because it was like number seven on my list. But um, I, I know everything that's going to happen with Talia Al Ghul. I know who it is. Um, but I, I think it's just your excitement and awesomeness and uh, and action that I continue to rewatch it over some of the other. No, sorry, not the other two. Dark Knight, obviously, rewatch more. But over um, Batman Begins for me but totally get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think at the time of it coming out too, part, part of it was like a, like a comfort thing for me too. And I, I'm struggling to strike that balance between like when this movie first came out and I watched it, how did I feel at that time versus how did I feel upon rewatch? And when the Batman Begins first came out, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Uh, this is like totally different from the Michael Keaton Batman's like definitely different from Val Kilmer's take and George Clooney's take on Batman. Uh, and it's just like a, a full-on reboot of, of the Batman movie franchise compared to what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's that's I think where a little bit where I'm coming from and why why it's so much higher than than Dark Knight Rises and Dark Knight for me. Yeah, it's funny for to sure. Think Actually, about... Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say you you bring up a good point about like rebooting the Batman franchise. Like, I, I do remember how um, how like just how much of a shock and a shift it was to see like the realistic dark and gritty batman it did kick off um like that type of of superhero movie and i I give it a lot of credit for that for sure yep 
It's almost shocking to see how close those movies are, because in my mind, the difference between George Clooney Batman and Christian Bale is like 15 years, but it's actually like six. Um, <laughs> so, I, I didn't realize that, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all right, I think, Paul, we're on to you at your number four. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, these four are probably... Oh, sorry, four, three, two are probably interchangeable, almost. Um, but number four is Interstellar for me. Um, again, probably top two or three soundtrack of all time. Probably even number one. Gladiator's up there, too, somewhere. Um, but, yeah, on the strength of that alone, I give it number four. Fair. I've said my piece on Interstellar. So. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have to keep... Yeah, we don't have to talk about Interstellar anymore, unless you have anything else, Tony. No, nothing else. I'll, 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 I mean, I've said most of my piece on Interstellar already, but I'll, I'll try to try to reserve a little bit for what I'm going to talk about <laughs> later on. All right, uh, my number four, which you talked about a little bit, was Memento. Um, just, it's a really solid movie. It's just hard for me to put it any higher, just because like, it has that wow factor of the whole like kind of shot in reverse thing. Um, I watched it however many years ago and have never rewatched it since like it doesn't have that rewatch value because once you know it you kind of know it um it's a fantastic movie obviously like the psychological elements of like this is kind of what christopher nolan was known for early in his career and i kind of wish he would bring that back a little bit of like introducing filmmaking techniques that tell a story psychologically and emotionally um so i love the movie i love all the performances and kind of like how it slowly unravels uh, again, like we're in the top four, so this is all masterpiece territory, but I just can't put it any higher than number four. Yeah, I mean, even though I was much lower than that, I not much lower, a little bit lower. I don't disagree at all. That that was a good point, though, about um, like rewatch value. You, it's the the appeal or the the main draw is like discovering the the mystery or like solving the mystery, and once it's done, you can't really do it again <laughs> all right we're on to number three Ooh, top three um i will put memento as number three um i may get killed for this by you guys but i know i know it doesn't have the rewatch value and and i i know i i that's why i ranked inception down low for me that it doesn't really have that much rewatch value for me but um I liked the, I, I liked like the, like that neo-noir style of this film. Like I, I liked the, the mystery component of it as well, even though Inception had that mystery component too. Uh, I liked that it was a little grittier than Inception. Um, it, it almost reminds me in a sense, and you guys, you guys can kill me for this if you want to, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of David Fincher's Seven, kind of like similar style where in seven, like it's just constantly raining in this unknown city that these two cops are in and they're trying to track down this killer. Um, it just felt like a very dark film for me when I was watching it. It made me feel, again, uncomfortable. Uh, and that's just a big part of my of my top three overall is the like physical feeling that I had when I was watching these films. Um, and I do like the style that like there's that black and white and the color style in the movie um, too, but it did make me feel like a physical feeling when I was watching Memento and so did the other films that are better, better one and two. 
Um, but that's for me the reason why why it's top three. I, I just really like the style of it, the darkness of it, um, and and I I like the just accessibility of it too. I feel like it like we talked about this a little bit already that it's only an hour and thirteen minutes, just a shade under under two hours long. Um, so it's definitely much more accessible from from a like length standpoint than some of his other films as well. Yeah, and one other thing I'd like to say about uh, Memento is really good casting with Carrie Ann Moss in that role because at that point, like this was shortly after The Matrix came out, and so she was like, she's Trinity, like she's a good guy, <laughs> and so like the fact that there's like a late reveal that she's kind of like a dick uh, was good <laughs> casting. Uh, maybe we should give him a lot more like credit around his his cat. Well, maybe it's not him who does it, is it? Him personally. I, I'm oh, sure he man. has a and, voice and, in it, but yeah, obviously he would have an actual casting director. And and, and Cypher from The Matrix too is it? I totally yeah. forgot. Oh yeah, yeah. But he's kind of an asshole in both two. ones, so. Well, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, it just adds to the mystery. Um, but no, I mean, all, all like good points. Um, I mean, we're splitting hairs when it comes to this top six, I feel like. Yeah. Like we we addressed that these are all really good movies. So there's there's only like a, a small margin separating them. Um uh for number three for me is uh Dark Knight. Um for reasons already stated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also had it at number three. Um, in my first iteration of this list, it was my number one and I had to like convince myself to not have oh, it wow. so high. Um, because like, I think just emotionally I hold it so high. Um, but just like, I don't know, it's a damn good movie on its own. And like you re- compare it to a movie like Heat as Heat is what it always gets compared to of just, you know, you could take out Batman and it would still be a good movie. Um, you could take out like the Joker and like uh, Two Face, and it would still be a good movie, which is rare in the comic book world because they rely on the the characters in the suit so much. So mm-hmm. it was it was nice to see that we got it once, and we'll never get a movie like that again. <laughs> uh, the only thing I will hold against it is the the last maybe twenty thirty minutes uh, with like Two Face. Um, it that's the part the point where it started to feel like it was dragging a little bit. Um, like having to save uh, Commissioner Gordon's family from Two Face. Two Face. That that was the first time I ever like was in a three-hour movie, and I started to feel like, oh, I don't. This is pretty long. <laughs> um, but otherwise, like again, very minor nitpick. All right, we're on to the top two here. Cool. Wait, do it. We... Oh, what was your? Oh, yeah, you said Mine Dark Knight Dark as well. As well yeah. yeah. Okay, Tony. Um, two is Interstellar for me. Um, for reasons we've already discussed, I I love the dyst- the dystopian setting. I I love. I really do think that that Earth is probably going to head in this direction, as much of a depressing tone it is. Um, and in, maybe tying it back a little bit to Oppenheimer, I don't think the world's going to end by by a nuclear holocaust, but you know, it could end just due to, to crop failure and crop shortage um, for, like brought on by climate change. So I think it's it's definitely a very, a very real look into our future. Uh, so I, I really did appreciate that upon rewatch um, and just an A plus soundtrack. And my movie going experience at the time when I was watching it was like <laughs> a near out of body experience. It felt, felt great when I was watching it. It just, it was mind blowing at the time. 
Um, and still, still a great movie upon rewatch too, despite the ending being a little so-so, but I'll give him a pass on that, uh, just for everything else that I mentioned. Hmm. How did you feel about the casting of, um, what's the, was it Matt Damon? Um, for oh, the Mr. Man, Mr. Yes. Dr. Man. <laughs> um, it's funny. Cause like, I, I, I quote that, uh, like just before they meet him, like do not attempt docking, or I think they already met him at that point. I always, like I always quote, do not attempt docking, just like completely out of context uh, with my <laughs> brother because him and I watched it together. Um, no, like I, I take it or leave it. Like I feel like if, if you were to replace him with someone else, it, it would be equally as good. It wouldn't um, like take away from my experience of, of enjoying the movie. Um, like Matthew McConaughey, I think carried enough weight in his lead role that, um, like if you were to replace him with someone else, like that would definitely take away from my enjoyment of the film. But mm-hmm. Matt Damon, not so much. If you were to replace him with with Rami Malek or Josh Hartnett, it would have been <laughs> just as good, in my opinion. I, I'm not a huge Matt Damon fan, but I did like the performance he gave in that movie. Um, so that's one mm-hmm. of the few that I'll give him credit for. Um, the other thing I like about Interstellar, <laughs> now that now that I think about Interstellar more, as you guys are like reminding me of things of like, yeah, just like going back to that concept of like what the the post-apocalyptic world kind of looks like. Um, and again, coming back to me being a, a new parent, uh, when they talk about the kids going to school of like, oh, we don't need the world doesn't need any more engineers, we need more farmers, and it's like, okay, what what schools and trades do I want to like teach my daughter, and like, what do I want to encourage her towards? And it's like yeah, you probably don't need to go into arts, uh, even if that's something you enjoy, because sorry, we fucked up the world for you. So you got to go, you got to go fix it somewhere. Yeah, I, I think the the last um, complaint I'll give about Interstellar is um, the, the, the scientist that goes with him, the one that gets washed away on the wave planet. Uh, was the most unnecessary death I've ever seen in any movie ever <laughs> where he's like standing at the door of the spaceship for a good like for the time it takes Anne Hathaway to be carried by the robot he's standing at the door where he could have just waited inside the whole time but no he stands outside until the wave washes him away and he can't get in that uh that ha- that has always bothered me. <laughs> I think suffice it to say, we could probably nitpick a lot of details on a lot of Christopher <laughs> Nolan movies. And yeah, that, sure. the strength of the rest of his movies kind of encourage us to not worry about the details so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also the, the um, what's his name, Romilly? Um, uh, the one that they leave behind while they go to the, the wave mm-hmm. planet, like to study black holes. I, I just feel the absolute worst for him. <laughs> He's the one, like, they they leave him for, like, years on the spaceship, and then he finally gets years, down yeah. to a planet. 17 years. He finally, they finally come back for him, and he leaves, and the lands on the planet and explodes. Um, poor guy. Are we, oh, wait, are we on my number two? Your number two. Oppenheimer. Um... Again, a little bit of recency bias there, but I I I stand by it. <laughs> I'm I'm shocked. I, I thought everyone would agree that Oppenheimer was not that great, but you guys both had it in your top five. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which you guys might similarly be surprised by. My number two, which is the Prestige, which I mm. 
debated putting at number one. I, I love the prestige. Um, we mentioned David Bowie's turn as Tesla, but just like the strength of it is those two characters one upping each other. And for me, like it's a really grounded story on like, it's almost like a character study on people who are competitive, trying to like one up each other. And like, why are you trying to do these things? And how, like to what lengths would you go just for pride and competitiveness and trying to prove yourself? Um, so the fact that it did that, and I usually don't like movies that are kind of based on surprise twists and it's a movie that has like surprise twist after surprise twist after surprise twist. But like, I actually felt it. Like I felt like, like I was actually genuinely surprised and it added to the story and the characters. So, um, I, I genuinely love that movie. I've rewatched it many times. Um, great performances all around and yeah, love it doesn't have the same soundtrack that the rest of Christopher Nolan's films have. That's probably one thing that holds it back. Yeah, that's true. I think the one thing that I've never really understood about, and this is, like again, another very minor nitpick, but why didn't Hugh Jackman, spoiler alert, uh, why didn't Hugh Jackman just get rid of the bodies after instead of keeping like an entire warehouse of his own dead bodies in water tanks? Never understood that, except to reveal the twist to... Um, to Christian Bale. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, that wasn't the question. <laughs> <laughs> it makes for a good twist. It makes for a good reveal, though. I'll give it that. All right, we are we are on to the number one picks. Yep, last one on on the list for me is Dunkirk. Um, mentioned this before. Uh the tension that builds up through through the soundtrack in that film like there's just like that constant kind of like low buzzing or humming that you feel is always going to come to a head at some point but it just doesn't just constantly makes you feel uncomfortable the entire time when you're watching that film um that for me like really contributed to to my my experience watching the film and it turn in turn made me feel uncomfortable watching the film and i feel like whenever a film has an effect like that on me physically um, that's to me the, the mark of a, of a good film when I'm watching it like that. Um, but I, I also do like that for a war movie that it really wasn't like the traditional war movie that uh, Paulo like, <laughs> really like. It doesn't really have. It doesn't really focus on like the gore. It focuses on one particular story from the war uh, and how you know how that story came to be and kind of what happened and what transpired. They could have went in so many different directions. They could have shown like some some bloody, gory scenes, but they chose not to. Um, I did like too that the the passing of time. I, I know Paul, this is Paul, this is a criticism for you from before that oh, like here was one hour has elapsed or one week has elapsed. But I, I think it as much as that's like a hallmark now of Christopher Nolan films, I do think that he did a remarkable job of showcasing like what what the experience was like for someone that was living through this time, whether they were on the beach or in a plane or about to get on a boat to go save these soldiers, like their concept of time varied so, so differently and so much that um, to them, it maybe felt like a week had passed or an hour had passed. And I know he's literally telling us how much time has elapsed uh, just so we're keeping track of it. But I also think it, it was meant to show that if you're living through this period and living through this time, that your concept of time is also a bit skewed as well. Um, so overall, very well done. Um, I'm not a huge war buff by by like war buff standards, but um, 
I did really enjoy the film and, and it, it did evoke a, a physical feeling for me during that time. And that feeling was very much feeling uncomfortable um, and, and on edge. And I, I, I enjoy that when I'm watching films like this. So uh, big, big ups to, to Christopher Nolan for evoking that kind of feeling for me when I'm watching it. This is where it becomes like difficult to debate Christopher Nolan because like for me, Dunkirk was number nine. Like I had it way down the list, but I don't disagree with anything you're saying. Like yeah. it's still a really good movie. There's all these like really good things that he did. Um, and that just kind of like speaks to just how good everything on this list is. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Like I, it's funny because I mean, Gar- Carson said it best. We agree with everything you're saying. It's just coming down to preference really. Um, yeah. And I mean, a, a lot of what, why i enjoy a movie does come down like you said to how it makes you feel um and that's like just completely subjective like there's no way to to rank that so yeah i mean i have no arguments against it (laughs) all right on to your number one which is also my number one if you've been tracking spoiled it already but it's Yeah. yeah Inception. <laughs> Number one for you both, eh? Wow. I, I, I feel like I have to rewatch this um, either tonight or at some point this weekend. This is as much a surprise for me as it is for you, Tony. Like, I didn't <laughs> I didn't think we would agree on that one. I, we agreed on two, I think, which is, yeah, especially surprising. Uh, although I was all over the board for everything else compared to the both of you. <laughs> Yeah, so Inception for me was like the opposite of Dark Knight. Like Dark Knight, I loved, and I had to like convince myself otherwise. Like the the worst thing that Inception has going for it, in my opinion, is its fans or people who like it, because there's so many people who either misinterpret it or just like are thinking about the wrong things. Like just the fact that the word Inception now means recursion, um, or like vice versa, um, and just like the fact that people are talking about the dreams element of it, like. For me, it's this really clear story that you could have told, like it could have been a spy thriller and it could have just been a good spy thriller, but you decide to go high concept and really what it's about at its core is him exploring the idea of being a filmmaker and like producing art, which is kind of told through this idea of his people creating dreams, which then has like a spy story put on top of it. Like for me, it's just the the most clean, crisp example of somebody taking something that's super, super high concept that has all these convoluted things and tying it together in such like a nice, clean way that says like, it's a very tight knit story around like emotions and characters and like the the type of things that they're exploring um, that I had to kind of, yes, I hate all the people who are fans of Inception, (laughs) but the movie itself is genuinely like amazing and again as i said earlier like kind of ruins all of christopher nolan's movies after it because he hasn't repeated putting something together that clean since then except for oppenheimer (laughs) (laughs) no i'm just kidding um yeah i mean it's i really it was interesting to me because usually with everyone we're we're pretty much on the same page um in terms of like ranking things or like our how we enjoy certain things but i i I liked how different your ranking was tony from (laughs) not only from mine but from carson's um it was it was a nice surprise (laughs) i I actually really liked it yeah Yeah, i I was thinking about a lot this morning um where to put dunkirk but dunkirk um yeah that's really really enjoyed that movie 
Yeah, I, I like when we do rankings like this, like ahead of time, I try to like predict what other people are going to have high or low. And I'm <laughs> always completely wrong. And it's just like completely off it. And like, I have this written, I've been tracking what you guys are posting so I can write about this after. And it's just like all of the scores are just completely all over the place. Of, so <laughs> it'll be fun to put these side by side. Yeah, I mean, so again, did you, it just... did you guys think, did you think that Inception was going to sweep Carson ahead of time? I, I didn't think even like not number one, like I was debating this even like throughout all day today of whether I was going to put it number one, because in my mind, Inception, Prestige and Dark Knight are interchangeably number one. Like they're all that good. So I wasn't, I was more thinking like tiers. Like I was like, here's the obvious top five and here's the obvious bottom six, but clearly you guys didn't follow that at all. No, <laughs> not at all. All right, well, we will close off the discussion there. Um, and as we always forget to prepare to, um, we will talk about what movie we are looking forward to coming out uh, in the, the coming weeks and months. Um, even though I have not given you guys time to prep and I have not prepped myself and I am continuing to talk to delay to give people time to say something, <laughs> does anyone have a movie coming out soon that they are looking forward to? Uh, feel oh, free boy. to uh, start us off. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Carson. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking it up to see what the release date is because I'm not sure if it's, I think it might not be for another couple months, but the, uh, oh, now I forget the title, the the John David Washington movie, that is another high concept sci-fi movie coming out from the director of Rogue One, which is called, oh. <laughs> I'm trying to find the title of it. I will find it here shortly. I can go while you're. Uh, go, yes, while go, you're please thinking. go. <laughs> I, I'm jumping way ahead, but uh, before watching Oppenheimer, the the trailer for the Exorcist movie uh, showed, <laughs> oh and I don't, I absolutely don't want to see it. So actually, this is not really answering the question. I I don't want to see that movie at all, mostly because I'm too scared to. But I'm just really curious as to what happens and what the reviews are going to be. <laughs> so in so, that sense, I'm looking forward to it coming out. <laughs> I didn't know that that movie was coming out, and I thought it was like a ripoff of The Exorcist. And they started doing the uh, the first few notes of Tubular Bells, which is the song for The Exorcist, which, by the way, is hilarious, because if you ever listen to Tubular Bells, it's like a 45-minute song that has those couple notes at the beginning and then goes just into like this... Anyway, if you haven't listened to Tubular Bells, search it on YouTube and please listen to it tomorrow. It's a wonderful song that is not at all like the first few notes that are in The Exorcist. But I thought it was a movie <laughs> trying to rip off The Exorcist, and I was like, you're playing just enough notes to make me think of The Exorcist, but you're not going to actually play it because you're going to get infringement. And then by the end of it, I was like, oh, it's it's actually an Exorcist movie. Yep. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the movie that I was at... thinking of was called yeah. The Creator. Oh, um, oh, yes. I saw the trailer for that one. I think I'm going to be disappointed, but I'm still interested anyway. I'm getting like 65 vibes from it. <laughs> I I was hoping for more of District 9 vibes when I saw about it in production, and then I saw the trailer, and I was like, eh, it's not going to be as good as I want, but hopefully it's still somewhat interesting. Fair. Any luck, Tony? <laughs> no, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'll come back to you guys, but I, I got nothing. I'm sorry. No, that's totally fine. We can actually, I don't know, 
what we're going to do with this, but I was going to say I have to go to the bathroom so you could like kind of edit this for the first time, Carson, <laughs> if you want and give Tony some more time. Sure. Or, or my comments about going to the bathroom are going to be on the recording. <laughs> and we're done.